I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I am your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm your other co-host, Matt Bernico. Hi. <laughs> Hi, we're here once again. We're both extremely tired. In fact, both of us fell asleep on our respective couches, coincidentally, prior to being on this call. But you know what? We're going to rally. <laughs> we're going to push through. We are not going to let that energy. You know, I my hope is that you get that kind of like slumber party energy for after you've been That's like right. overtired. Yeah. And we can just sort of bring that to it. That's right. It's the, um, it's the point in the lock in where you're at your party peak. You're not tired anymore. <laughs> right. And you're ready to go. I was actually I was just reading over our podcast notes and I got really psyched about it. So I I'm bringing new energy to this. I'm really excited to talk about um marxism <laughs> that's it <laughs> and i'm pumped <laughs> all right uh i'm gonna lean into that so um it's great too that matt looked them over because matt is responsible for almost all the notes on this episode really <laughs> i'm not i'm not pulling my weight this time around so uh it's gonna be a good one though we're gonna talk about marx so we're gonna talk about the bible and I do think we we stumbled on a good theme. So last week on the show, we were talking about the Beatitudes through the lens of liberation theology, and it was a lot of fun. We talked about Ernesto Cardinal, and uh, it's been getting some good play. I feel like people who listened to it appreciated it as well. And uh, we decided, guess what? The Beatitudes, they're good. <laughs> they're good moral teachings, uh, and they're also actually very hard to take seriously if you're committed to capitalism. They don't sort of lean in that direction. And I think that's probably a good conclusion, but there are also a lot of weird right-wing Christians who find ways to read the gospel, the Beatitudes, etc., without coming to those same conclusions. So we thought, maybe we'll spend some time looking at that. You know, I think a lot of people reacted to the episode being like, I don't know how people read these things and then are still capitalist at the end of it. And you know what? We decided we're going to find out exactly how that happens. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> First of all, let me say that um, we are going to talk about a lot of right-wing pastors in this episode, and I must say, they have to be stopped. Oh my gosh. <laughs> These right-wing <laughs> pastors are awful. Um, they uh, are experts in missing the point. They're experts in sort of creating rhetorical paradigms where, uh, you know, um, the, the actual point of the text is completely, you know, over their head. It's really awful. But um, I think kind of getting into it a little bit and thinking through things from their perspective, give you a place to start from like, like give you a place to start understanding why they think this way. I mean, it's a, a, a small glimpse into the weird hermeneutic project that is sort of right wing Christianity. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it, it should be a pretty enlightening 
or at least funny <laughs> look at things. So um, here's the idea. Like, despite all of the places in the Bible where the prophets or Jesus or somebody, the early church, I don't know, anyone, <laughs> a pla- every place in the Bible where somebody is speaking out against uh, the exploitation of other people, um, especially when it comes to money and, like, the rich and the poor, like those kind of themes in particular, many have invented a way around those admonitions about wealth that more or less just, like, miss the point completely. Or they find a way to, like, um, make the admonition of wealth about something different, um, something bigger than wealth, so that wealth is kind of off the hook. So uh, in this episode, we're going to take a look at a few different pretty right-wing people. Um, Two of them are pastors. One of them is just a person from the Acton Institute. So (laughs) there you go. Um, Ecumenical representation. (laughs) That's right. That's right. I do believe they are all Protestants, though. Um, But it doesn't matter. It's fine. But uh, it's interesting because um, here's here's I guess the theme, right? Um, somebody they will write these like blog posts or essays, and they'll be like, "Listen, the Bible it says some tough things about about wealth, right? It says, uh, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to get into heaven." Or Jesus told the uh, rich young ruler to sell all his stuff and give it away to the poor, and like that's how you'd be perfect like God, <laughs> like all these kinds of things. Um, and then each person will be like, well, you know, it sounds really hard, but actually it's about this other thing. It's not really about wealth. It's actually about um, you shouldn't be greedy. It's actually about not exploiting other people. It's actually about, um, you know, making sure that you worship God rather than money. So in in doing this, they create this sort of like way to say, well, it's not really about wealth. So wealth is actually OK. It's like a, it creates a sort of like weird mechanism where um, since the problem is bigger than just having money, um, it, it lets having money off the hook, <laughs> which mm-hmm. ends up being kind of a problem because how do you get money? Um, it's by being greedy. It's by exploiting other people, <laughs> et cetera, right? <laughs> sort of misses that point. Um, so anyways, I think this is, ends up being an interesting piece of the puzzle. Like why do people um, look at the Bible, you know, like look at like the Luke or the Beatitudes or, you know, the prophet Isaiah or whoever and see all these admonitions of wealth and admonitions against people who are exploiting others for wealth and just ignore it. <laughs> why, why, why do people do that? So uh, we're going to figure it out. Um, okay, Dean, I'm going to throw the first one at you here. You're going to love this one. I'm ready. I can't wait. Okay. This is from a, um, this is, it's from a sort of dated um, blog post from the Acton Institute. And like, okay, if you want to find a representation of any bonkers political ideology on the internet, you totally can, right? <laughs> it's all out there. The Act Institute is an interesting repository of them all because they are all extremely bonkers. Um, and this one is dated, but I picked it for a specific reason because it uses language in this very bizarre way. Um, and also, I think it makes some big assumptions that I think are pretty prevalent among people on the right, um, people who are capitalists. And it's very silly. So let's just, I'll, I'll just throw it at you here. This is from a, uh, a blog post called Views of Wealth in the Bible in the Ancient World by Scott B. Ray. Scott B. Ray, by the way, is, um, or they at least were a professor at Biola, so a really conservative Christian college. Okay, so Scott B. Ray writes, The Old Testament commands the people of God to keep the sabbatical year in which the land was to lie fallow for one year and seven. This is in Leviticus. This is what we, uh, we've talked about this on the podcast before. It's called the Jubilee. Um, your debts are forgiven. Your land goes back the, um, to you. The uh, you know prisoners are set free and so on. 
So this is the year of Jubilee in which on the 50th year, all land was returned to its original land. Property had to be returned to an impoverished family member in order to give him or her the opportunity to make a living. These principles cannot be directly applied today because they were written to a society that revolved around subsistence agriculture, not a modern information age economy in which very few people are tied to the land to make their living. Rather, we must glean a general principle from each of these commands that can be applied to the different setting of today. Um, okay, so this is um, one rhetorical approach that people take to admonitions of wealth, or in this case, the the year of Jubilee in the Bible. Um, so, okay, uh, Dean, maybe you can talk a little bit about Jubilee in the Bible. It, it, it's a, a pretty straightforward thing that we've talked about before, but maybe you can remind everybody what it's about, and then we can talk about why this is a very strange thing to say. Okay, sure. Yeah, so the Jubilee, we have talked about it in the past, but it's always good to refresh. And I've been reading even more since we talked then, <laughs> so I know more about it now. Um, the Jubilee is, uh, as you were just saying, this really interesting kind of um, uh, piece of a cycle, basically, in the biblical um, economy, where at a certain point in uh, every seven years, there are all these kind of equalizations of... Uh, um, you know, debt and all kinds of things that, that are kind of like debt, right? Like you could uh, give away uh, yourself or another person in servitude, for instance. And after that, those seven years are up, you got to uh, everything has to get back to normal or, or equalized. And it's actually really fascinating. So the Bible is not completely unique in this. In fact, there was like a big tradition in the ancient Near East of doing these kinds of things like large scale, massive debt forgiveness. And um, on top of this, uh, good for Scott Ray for not saying this, but a lot of other people will say, well, the Jubilee was like a good idea in the Bible, but of course it was never, ever practiced. And uh, a lot of ancient uh, scholars now say that is not true. That's like a, you know, a story we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better right. um, to assume that it was like so lofty a goal that it can never be accomplished. Right. Because we live in capitalist societies. But in fact, it was often accomplished and. In fact, in ancient economies, it was necessary because, uh, you know, if your community is like at war or something and everybody has like tons and tons of debt that they're struggling under, it's actually going to be really hard to, first of all, like boost morale <laughs> for that war and also to rebuild afterwards. Right. So lots of interesting actual political reasons for debt forgiveness as well. Um, tons of like rulers were remembered for uh, forgiving people's debts in the ancient world. And so what we find in the Bible is a kind of uh, God-sanctioned debt forgiveness plan that is built into the political economy. So a really uh, amazing um, moment. Uh, I should say, too, that it is not like an early kind of communist moment. Like the Jubilee doesn't redistribute wealth so that everybody is like at zero or kind of at the same. And then it's whatever, like an economic race of like mini capitalism for seven years. Like that's not how it was. So uh Sometimes we can over-idealize it and assume that everything just goes back to this kind of moment of equality. But nevertheless, um, the forgiveness of debt is actually pretty massive. And, uh, you know, Scott Ray is right to be frightened. You you couldn't really do that in capitalism and and have a, <laughs> a pretty standard wealth accumulation uh, strategy. That's right. Um, I guess the to me, the very strange part about this, though, is that, like, uh, he says that the the problem for him around uh, a jubilee now <laughs> is that it's different. You know, you can't do it because people aren't tied to the land to make their living in the same way, <laughs> right? Which I think is a completely strange thing to say. Um, I mean, like in what way? I guess is that true? Plenty of people are still subsistence. Um, you know, rely on subsistence agriculture. Plenty of people are still really tied to the land. I mean, 
Um, I don't know. Dean, think of all of the uh, these big Canadian mining companies that do own land and uh, <laughs> have, you know, keep it from the people who live there. I guess it's just uh, to me kind of a, a bonkers thing to say. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, on the one hand, like I'm sympathetic to a moment in this argument, which is to say the biblical political economy is um, well, there's not even a singular one. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> like the political economy in whatever, whatever is happening in uh, Leviticus is very different from the political economy of ancient Rome and, and so on. And it's important to take stock of that. And in fact, we've done that on the show in the past too, right? We can't sort of easily transpose the lessons of like Acts chapter two and four to our own time in industrial capitalism and say, see, we've got a, a good model for like primitive communist societies, right? So it is important to like recognize those differences. But at the same time, <laughs> you're right, like uh, the particular differences that Scott Ray is recognizing are actually not not real, mm -hmm. right? In fact, most people in the world, like just on the whole, do lead lives that are very tied to living on the land. Uh, like the majority of the global South has that kind of situation, even with proletarianization and everything else. So uh, important to recognize from where people are also reading the totally. Bible. Totally. Well, and it's also worth paying attention to the way that he resolves this tension as well in his argument. It's like, um, okay, uh, things are not the same as they are, you know, things things now are not the same as they are in the Bible. Like, we agree on that, of course. These Things are not the same, the political economy is different. So he says that instead we have to glean a general principle from each of these commands that can be applied to different settings of today. And, like, again, I agree, but the um, the conclusion for him, when he says glean general principle, he means to ignore it. <laughs> and I mean to, like, forgive people's mm -hmm. debts. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, the the principles that that get sort of taken up uh, are not the same principles that I'd want to take. For <laughs> yeah, sure. absolutely. Okay. Well, anyways, he goes on to do a, a few other kind of funny things. Um, so later in his essay, he says this: At first glance, the Bible appears to condemn the accumulation of wealth. It just appears to. <laughs> Classic <laughs> passages of scripture, such as "It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven," that's in Luke. And blessed be the poor, also in Luke, suggests that possessions of suggests that the possession of wealth is suspect while poverty is virtuous. Something we talked about a lot last week, actually. Mm -hmm. These texts should be balanced by others that present wealth in a different perspective. These include sayings of the Old Testament wisdom literature that regard wealth as God's blessing to be enjoyed, like in Ecclesiastes, and as a result of one's diligence in Proverbs. Similarly, the New Testament, while Paul counsels Timothy to keep wealth in proper perspective, Paul acknowledges that God gives liberally to his people for enjoyment. That's in 1 Timothy, both of those things. Yet, this acknowledgement is balanced by admonitions not to trust in one's wealth because of the temptation to arrogance mm -hmm. and of the uncertainty involved in retaining wealth, and thus conversely to be content with one's economic station in life. <laughs> so, this is really frustrating to me for a few reasons. So, um, I think, okay. Me as a uh, as a Bible believing Protestant, this is, this rubs me the wrong way in so, in so many different ways because it's saying the Bible appears to be saying this one thing about the accumulation of wealth. You know, it says all these things in Luke. It says all these things in Matthew. You can find it in the Old Testament. But we need to balance these kind of extreme views with these other with these other views. And it's frustrating to me because it's like okay, some <laughs> like um, the the eye of the needle thing or. Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in the Beatitudes and Luke and in Matthew. These are both like the words of Jesus directly, right? <laughs> and like, that's different than, I don't know, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. Like in the, um, in the realm of like, what is the most important thing in the Bible? 
you know, the words of Jesus, very important. Ecclesiastes, far less so. <laughs> Proverbs, far less so. I mean, if you're, I don't know, it's just like, um, this is this is actually a pretty important part um, of coming to understand the Bible, right? Like, you there are there are conflicts within it, for sure. But, like, you have to kind of build a scale of, like, what is most important in it. That's what hermeneutics basically is, right? It's finding a way or a guide to, like, interpret what is most important in, in the Bible, this big, weird, confusing book. And um, it's not very convincing to me to say, like, I don't know, these, like, very sort of, like, um, vague statements about how wealth is kind of okay. They don't weigh against uh, the words of, like, Jesus, who's, like, you know, God in Christianity to me. It doesn't make a lot of sense as a hermeneutic. Yeah, I mean, it's also important just to think through what the Bible even is, right? Like, uh, you know, I think there's there's a danger, too, in, in saying, like, we can prioritize one kind of ultimate hermeneutical key when really what we want to do is find out how to sort of understand all these texts in relationship to one another. So for example, like, right. like in Proverbs, when it says something like whatever God gives to the rich and, and so on, and it does say that kind of stuff. If you just read the the prophets, right, most of like the prophets or even a lot of Psalms, for example, are basically people complaining about the fact that that is not true. <laughs> like that's not yeah. happening to them. So, you know, it just begs a lot of questions. Like, it does. What what is the value of of Proverbs and what is a book like Proverbs trying to do? Like it is not trying to give you a collection of, uh, you know, ultimate truths or axioms about the reality we find ourselves in. And in fact, the Bible itself uh, muddies that up or like a book like Ecclesiastes, you know, so <laughs> it's an extremely funny book to go to if you want to prove why like wealth is good, because the whole point of the book is that everything is meaningless, right? <laughs> the, right. <laughs> this, this rich wise guy was like, I did it all. I got all the money. And guess what? It turns out it is like not helpful at all. Not not giving me a hand. So, yeah, yeah it's a big a big weird thing to just sort of refuse to uh, read the Bible, I guess. Or just like, you know, yeah, to, to seek balance between these two things, I think is kind of a bonkers thing because it's like you're you're recognizing that like there are some pretty extreme things in the Bible about wealth. Like, for example, I don't know if you follow us on Twitter, uh, Dean and I were we were on our A game today of shitposting, but um, <laughs> I posted a great VeggieTales meme uh, that's a psalm and it says break the arm of the wicked and evildoers and like. <laughs> you know, asking God to like literally break uh <laughs> break somebody's arm is like one extreme. You can't just be like, well, actually it balances out if you read <laughs> right. or something. It just seems like it seems like such a completely um stupid way to think about uh how, how you interpret the Bible, right? Like, uh well, there are these two extremes and you have to find like the the mean between them or something right. like that. Is is seems like a particularly unfaithful way to read the Bible, actually. Yeah, and I guess just to put kind of a cherry on top, I guess, of this whole bizarre situation. Like, so Scott Ray wants to say, you can't just uh, easily transpose the Jubilee stuff to our own time because, you know, it was a different political economy, a different time, different stuff going on. But you could say exactly the same things about praising the wealthy, right? <laughs> what it means to be wealthy in, like, the ancient Near East is not at all what it means to be wealthy right. in, like, the richest country on the history of the planet. <laughs> like, Jeff Bezos is not the, uh, you know, the wise king of Solomon or whatever. And, like, yeah, it's it's important to also recognize a lot of the times if you sort of try to spin the logic out that capitalists try to give you, you're going to find it very selectively applied and, you know, there's all kinds of ironies upon ironies. So, yeah, uh, Scott Ray does not want to sort of he wants to track the differences between our political economies when it's very convenient and then ignore them <laughs> when it, it is not.
Yeah, totally. I mean, like Elon Musk has like uh, 230-something billion dollars. Um, yeah, it's not <laughs> it's not the same <laughs> as like, uh, I don't know, as Bible times. Mm-hmm. But um, so, I mean, there's not a there's not a direct line there, right? Like, um, it's not that you can't draw a direct line between like God blessing the billionaires of 2022. But you can draw a direct line between me wanting God to break their arms. <laughs> right, something. right. Yeah. And just to, I guess, continue on that point a little bit more too. like, um, you know, I'm not an expert in ancient Near Eastern economy or anything like that. But like. One thing that is so fascinating about the rich is, especially in a lot of ancient societies, being rich also comes with like a lot of obligations and expectations. And of course, there are lots of bad rich people, as the Bible attests to over and over again. But the assumption is that if you have wealth, it's probably because you got it in like a weird way, like you got it through inheritance Mm -hmm. or you got it because you belong to a particular class. It's not because you got it by like your entrepreneurial spirit, right? So even the station of what it means to be in that particular social class is not what Scott Ray thinks, right? So the means by which a person becomes rich today is also like the very definition, the the class sort of uh, uh, appearance of, of wealth or what it means to be rich now is like qualitatively different in so many ways, right? Uh, For sure. So <laughs> important anyway to just kind of keep running with that, I think. Yeah, very important. A, a great uh, a great idea to draw that out, actually. No one in the Bible is going to space. That's the thing. <laughs> That's all right. Except uh, um, the prophets. Except the prophets, I guess, except like, yeah, who all, all these great prophets who were like just ascended into heaven. Abraham, I suppose. And Ezekiel, whatever. who saw that big alien spaceship. Oh, that's true. Good point. He didn't go to space. He just saw. True. Yeah. Space he just came saw them him. up there. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Um, let's move on to the next one because it's extremely silly. Um, I feel like the... <laughs> The Scott Ray article at least has like um, a little bit of intellectualism behind it, whereas the next two that we're going to talk about do not. (laughs) So uh, hold on to your butts. Okay, this is uh, from an article from the Gospel Coalition called Luke, Evangelist to the Rich by Kevin DeYoung, everyone's favorite DeYoung. Um, (laughs) He's not old. Extremely West Michigan name. Yeah, exactly. So... This article is um, at first it's like kind of interesting because it's like, hey, did you have you ever realized that Luke is actually specifically speaking to rich people? Um, and I'm like, oh, yeah, good point. <laughs> it, is, <laughs> it is exactly that. Uh, but then it kind of gets off the rails pretty quickly. So um, Kevin DeYoung is kind of like making the case that um, Luke is is talking to rich people directly. And, you know, you could read that a few different ways. Um, but he he posits that it doesn't mean that rich people are bad. It just means that they need to be Christians who get it. That's his phrase. Right. He need... <laughs> um, so he kind of comes up with these like seven ways, a great listicle, that you can be a rich Christian and you can get it. Ways to get it. <laughs> this is very, very obscure. Like it's hard to know what this means. But anyways, I'll read it. It's great. What does it look like for rich Christians to quote, get it? Importantly, Getting it doesn't mean to feel constant shame for being rich. It's off to a bad start, right? It doesn't mean trading places with the poor, and it doesn't mean prophetic denunciations of material goods or income disparity, which, like, why not? That's exactly what's in there, man. Well, obviously you don't get it, man. I'm not one that gets it, that's for sure. Okay, so if you want to, if you, if you out there, listener, are a rich Christian and you would like to get it, this is how you can, (laughs) this is how you can get it. Number one. We believe that Christ is our everything, our all in all. We can't serve two masters. Okay. 
We repent, we turn away from cheating, swindling, or lying, and we make amends with those who we have mistreated. Mm-hmm. I, If you're a rich person and you turn away from cheating, swindling, or lying, you will not be a rich person for long. <laughs> uh, we put Jesus before profit. Again, if you are a rich person and you, and you do this, you will not be rich for long. We are generous. We give freely to help the poor and to further the cause of the gospel. Okay? We are good stewards. We don't try to manipulate our way to God by lying, putting on a show, or trying to accrue power with our wealth. We are always shrewd, but never power hungry. Mm-hmm. We do not trust in our money. There is no real security in dollars and cents. The righteous rich do not expect their earthly riches to last. They live for their heavenly riches that do last. That's why they can give them to me. Yeah. And finally, we demonstrate humility. We consider everything we have to be a gift from God. We are meek before others and meek before God. Except like, <laughs> not really, right? <laughs> okay. All of these are so annoying. Um, because if you are a rich Christian and you do these things, it's it's you're you're lying to yourself 100 percent in each one of these in each one of these cases, right? If what if you're a rich Christian and you think that you put Jesus before profit. But you still leave your office every day and you step over a homeless person on the way to get a coffee. Like, no, you don't. You don't put Jesus before profit. You put profits first. You don't give a shit. <laughs> um, I, I, the other one that really bugs me, we can talk about them more systematically in a minute, but I'm just kind of getting this off my chest because I need to. Of course. The um, number six, the that we don't trust in our money kind of thing, that there's no security in our money is so annoying because yeah. there's not a rich person on the planet that actually believes that. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, like p- rich Christians will say this kind of thing, but they also have like, you know, um, one of those can't they have a pension. Exactly. <laughs> they have a they also paid for like, I'm sure, a home security system. Right. I'm sure they've got like one of those cameras that records you as you walk past. Um, it's just like so frustrating because like you don't believe this, but you're saying it just so you can kind of like feel a certain way. And I hate it so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know. It's like. <laughs> You know, we've talked about this on the show a thousand times, I guess, at the end of the day, just the way that capitalism is structured is such that you you just can't be rich without doing these things. Like you said, Matt, you know, lying, cheating, swindling people, of course, you know, legalized swindling, legalized cheating, legalized lying. They don't feel like those things, but nevertheless, uh, it's still lying, cheating and swindling. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, capitalism requires these things, for example, like. You know, when you think about the labor movement, uh, you don't really get rich by, like, paying people what they're worth, right? <laughs> that That's uh, by definition, right? If Jeff Bezos had every single person in the Amazon company paid, like, a, a fair, decent sort of amount based on what they actually do or something, like, he is not going to be joyriding to space all the time, right? And so what does that mean? It means that basically he has to do what they did in Bessemer, right? The Amazon as a company has to cheat in union votes. It has to lie to people about what unions do. It has to swindle people out of their money in order by by not returning to them the, the value that they create, right? Like by definition, you can't do these things and also be rich. And I think it's just, you know, it's embarrassing that Christians are... I guess, so bad at like thinking that way, because the whole point yeah. is that you're supposed to have a, a wider moral ethical framework based on your understanding of, of what Christ calls you to. But here you have Kevin DeYoung, I guess, just being like, I don't know, <laughs> the government says it's fine. So I guess it's fine. Yeah. You know, I think th- bringing up labor is such a really important point around these topics because like, okay, um, yeah. wage theft, people lose 
workers lose lose billions of dollars mm-hmm. in wage theft every year, right? We don't even know how much people lose because it's like so much of it goes unreported. Mm-hmm. That's cheating. And like it, it because it's such a prevalent thing, because it's such a widespread thing, you gotta know that there are a bunch of Christian bosses out there who are oh, definitely yeah. stealing wages from people. Here's a wild fact that I learned. Um so in Florida, uh an awful an awful one of the United States, if I do say so <laughs> myself. There's some great parts, don't get me wrong. But um it but but also come on it's Florida, um, <laughs> the people there are great. The state is awful itself. Um, they're alligators. All right, I'll stop trying to justify why I don't like Florida. But <laughs> just the same. Uh, okay, so they won a a raise in the minimum wage there, which is good for workers. It's a really slow wage, so it's like not like the best. <laughs> you know, it raises over a, a series of years. Whatever it was, eight something last year. Now it's ten something. We're on, you're, you're on your way up. It's great. It's good for somebody at least. Um, marginally speaking. But here's the thing about Florida that I just learned a few weeks ago. In Florida, there are there are no real repercussions for wage theft. Hmm. And in fact, like there's not a single state level employee um that that is like who whose job it is to make sure no one's stealing from people's wages. Well, it's like there's nobody you can report it to at the state level. Or you can report it, but like nobody's gonna do about do anything about it. So like wage theft in Florida is like rampant. Um, you can, there's a, there's, um, a bill there that's, um, around wage theft where people are trying to fight for changes in that. If you want to read more about it, um, you can go to the Florida Policy Institute and and read about wage theft in Florida. It's extremely bad, but like, it's a super widespread thing. And, and for sure, I mean, for sure it's Florida, right? (laughs) There are Christians who are doing it and, um, they are not turning from cheating, swindling or lying because they don't even probably think that they're doing it. Right. They just probably think that they're like, um, you know, they're getting a little bit of something, that they yeah. uh, that they deserve this and their workers don't because they're lazy because they're you know whatever subhuman in some way in their brains, um, so they don't even think about it. I'm sure it's cheating, swindling, or lying. Um, it's just completely bonkers. But like because of the way capitalism works, um, they they think that they're just like doing something that's okay, and uh, they're not. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that is huge. And you know, again, so like there's wage theft in that extremely obvious way right like you expect to get a particular wage and you don't it's garnished off or or not paid you entirely or whatever it might be um but again like the the structure of capitalism is such that basically like you know if you don't have democratic say over the kind of profits that your workplace generates i mean at the end of the day the whole point is capitalists make money by thieving what should be yours right the the wage in itself is a theft uh, because right. it's it's taking the the value that you've created and deciding how much you deserve rather than actually paying you what you're worth. Yeah, that's that to me is like the fundamental problem here, right? Like you can't say you're putting Jesus before profits and still engaging in wage labor, or or that you still think that wage labor is is good or preferable in some way, right? Like the whole the whole system is is set up to be exploitative. The whole situation is to, you know, to put profits first because you're paying somebody who creates a whole lot of value for you, very little, so you can make more money, right? So you can make more profits. Um, if you really put Jesus first, if you put Jesus before profits, you you just like wouldn't do that. You wouldn't pay people a wage. You would pay them some other way or whatever. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, you would join with other people and I don't know. <laughs> start a labor union or like be part of a, a cooperatively owned whatever or, or whatever it might be. But yeah, it, at the very least you're 
uh, going to recognize the the fundamental inequality and imbalance there. And I think that also gives the lie to the other piece here that we demonstrate humility, as Kevin DeYoung says, right? Uh, considering everything to be a gift from God or being good stewards. There's this way that Christians who are wealthy convince themselves that actually like they are rich because they are uniquely intelligent or like uniquely benevolent. And they have that those resources because like they know what to do with it. And so God is like, I trust you to know how to deal with it. And it's again, so frustrating because like, first of all, that's not how you got that money, right? (laughs) There's some pretty discernible ways in which that, that money came to you. Uh, But secondly, uh, it by definition means that you're not going to be humble before other people. I mean, you already think that you're kind of in a class of your own. And yeah, it's a a deeply kind of toxic Mm self-understanding. Yeah, totally. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about a different person. All right. (laughs) I'm mad at Kevin. I'm mad at Kevin DeYoung. And I already talked about somebody. I need to be mad at somebody different. I need to move on. My anger has to find a new target. Okay. Um, Here's another article from the gospelcoalition.org. Uh, it's called Jesus Loves Rich People, and it's from a celebrity pastor who I don't like a lot right now, and their name is Scott Sauls. Scott Sauls has been the target of um, a lot of people on Twitter <laughs> lately. Lucas Kwong, who runs this account um, called Christians Against Xenophobia, has been like laying into this guy just kind of nonstop, and I am extremely <laughs> here for it. It's very funny. Scott Sauls is like a celebrity pastor in Nashville, and... Um, He, uh, Marsha Blackburn, who is uh, an out-and-out white supremacist, is a part of his congregation, and Lucas Kwong has been trying to get him to, like, sort of denounce her or say that he disagrees with her or just, like, try to talk to her and try to say anything about her at all. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But Scott Sauls, like, will not do it. Instead, he just, like, says sort of, like, increasingly right-wing sort of things, (laughs) and it's very bizarre. Um, Most notably, Scott Sauls is always... It sounds like a joke. I uh, I don't know. He's always comparing himself to Hitler. That's his thing. <laughs> right, right. Um, he's got a little bit of Paul in him. That's the good side. But he's also got a little bit of Hitler in him, is, is what he tells everybody. <laughs> and here's the thing. If you got a little bit of Hitler in him, you should do some deep soul searching. You shouldn't be a pastor. You should go do something else. <laughs> go live in the desert. I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Okay, sorry. Um, so go follow the Christians Against Xenophobia account and witness this firsthand. It's great. Um, and you too can dunk on Scott Sauls on Twitter, and it's very fun. Anyways, Scott Sauls writes this. Jesus told the rich young ruler who was enamored with his wealth that he wouldn't be able to enter life until he sold everything and gave it to the poor. Why would Jesus tell the rich young ruler to give everything to the poor, but not demand the same of Abraham or Job? It was because the rich young ruler didn't really have money. Money had him. <laughs> That's like a backwards cap uh, sitting on stage youth, youth pastor moment for sure. Oh, yeah. The man who thought he couldn't live without his money, in truth, wouldn't be able to live with it. Scripture never says having wealth is wrong. Okay. Not once. <laughs> it does explicitly, but okay. <laughs> but it does say craving and serving wealth is the problem. Then uh, it concludes with this sort of like... Um, very dramatic moment. Things are not always as they seem. Jesus looked at the rich man overtaken with greed, and Jesus loved him. Do we? Hmm. <sighs> this is the most frustrating thing I've ever read in my entire life. Um, th- this whole article is really is really bizarre because it's like um, it's it's couched within this story of Scott Saul's family moving from New York to Tennessee, and they like buy this big house, and he's he has to like have all these conversations with people who are rich, and he doesn't really know how to do it at first, but then he kind of gets to this conclusion where. You know, is is money really the problem or is it really 
the pro- is you know is it something else is is it serving wealth the problem is it is it greed or you know something else and mm-hmm. um his conclusion is that you really just have to love rich people and you know uh there's something to be said about loving rich people you got it you do have to do that but what that means in scott's you know approximation and mine are probably very different things um well, okay, Dean, what's your live react to this? This is the first time you're encountering this this idea, this tough this tough truth. What do you think? Yeah, the way that you're contextualizing it right now, um, the image that comes to mind for me is that meme going around these days of uh, Garfield. He's looking at a picture that says no Garfield on the wall, and he says, uh, who's that for? Um, that's how I imagine Scott Sauls reads the Bible, uh, seeing himself in these passages and saying, surely that can't be for me, even though it very clearly is. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think, man, the line that uh, the rich young ruler doesn't have money, money has him, is so cringy. I hate it. <laughs> yeah. I hate it so much. Okay, just the same. Let's take it apart. Let's think about it. I mean, what's happening here is that, like, Scott is doing the same thing that everyone else is doing. It's not really the like, money isn't really the thing, right? You can still be a Christian and have a lot of money. You can be a wealthy person and you can still be a Christian. No big deal. Um, it's actually all of these other things that kind of come when you um, you idolize wealth or something, right? You let money control you rather than you control money. Like those are the real problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like we were saying a minute ago, it kind of it, it just ignores that like to have a lot of money <laughs> means that you are already engaging in these things. Like you can't do that, right? You, you can't have a lot of money without exploiting people. That's just the way capitalism works. I'm so sorry that that's the case, but it is. Um, <laughs> And his answer is so stupidly vague. Like, um, does that so like, you know, most people on the left, um, they hate they hate rich people. And um, I guess that's true. And maybe something we should be aware of. Um, Instead, he thinks that we should love them. And like, I agree, you should love rich people. But like, what does it mean to love a rich person? Does it mean that you should just be like, well, you can get into heaven. You just got to be careful not to be too greedy. No, it doesn't mean that. It means you should you should do exactly what Jesus did and tell them to sell all their things and give it to the poor, right? Like I think that's it. Like to to love a rich person means to like tell them to stop being the way that they are. Um tell them to stop exploiting people. Tell them to um stop exploiting workers, stop trusting um that like stop actually trusting in money and like trust in like a community instead or or whatever. It's just so frustrating that um I, I don't know, it's like it's it's like um, recognizing that there's like a very there there are some overarching negative behaviors and comportments that you can have um, when you're very wealthy, and it's trying to say that those things are the problem rather than like what the actual root of that problem is, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is money. It's it's so frustrating to see people miss the point so obviously, so that they can have like rich people come to their church. It is gross and it is stupid and it is completely I don't know like brain dead. Yeah. I mean, it's very funny because, like, the irony is, yes, Jesus does love rich people, and Jesus loves rich people enough to, like, tell them the very difficult truth that they should stop doing it, right? <laughs> like, there's there's a kind of courage to that kind of love that pastors often That's don't true, yeah. exhibit. Yeah, it's like, um, they don't love rich people enough to, like, think very hard about whether or not they're really damaging their soul, and, and what would it mean to, like you know, get a little bit less in the collection plate by saying something like that, it would probably not feel very good, right? But uh, yeah, again, the irony is kind of, you know, these pastors are always talking about how like God 
like if you're reading the Bible and you feel uncomfortable, that's probably good. Like that's a sign that you're being touched by the spirit or whatever. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, they can't have those basic uncomfortable conversations that are like, it's not about wealth having you. It is about you having wealth. That is like by definition, a kind of corrupting influence in the Bible. And it's a through line all the way through, um, you know, Proverbs to the contrary. <laughs> the majority of the Bible is a, a chorus saying that, like, this is going to mess you up and God is not happy about it. And eventually God will mess you up, too. <laughs> right. Like that's the the judgment that you get um, after the Beatitudes or that you get in, in James five or something like that. And I think it's important to say that as well, that, like, if you really want to love rich people, you have to have the courage to try to build a world in which, you know, they're not a danger to themselves and others. And I think that is like sincere. Like, I don't say that just glibly. Like, you know, I want a world where people don't have an opportunity to like exploit other people and completely ignore it and like say these kinds of embarrassing things while contributing to violence. I do think that like there are a lot of rich people in the world who probably have consciences so deformed that like it doesn't really matter to them they know full well what they're doing and they're doing it anyway right but like i think there are there's like a non-negligible also amount of like well wealthy people and even relatively wealthy people who like you know if they see a person suffering on the street like their their heart will be moved for a minute right and they'll mm -hmm. like do something nice about it but they just like don't connect the dots in their brain and they will never connect the dots that like the very structural reason that they are wealthy and that person is poor is like connected. Like you don't have one without the other necessarily. And I think it's like to love those people in that situation, uh, to love the, the rich is to sort of, you know, make it impossible for people to, uh, to just go through life in an exploitative way. And, and that's, that's a real thing, like a real sincere kind of love. Yeah, I think so. It, that makes me think of this very hard lesson I learned one time. <laughs> <laughs> um okay it's not the same it's not in the same register but it's a similar sort of lesson i guess is what i'm trying to think I'm trying to think it through really quickly here so one time when i was in my undergrad um we were doing a group project for this like religion class that we had and um there was a, a there was a group member that we had that we did not like we were annoyed by him he was if you went to a christian college you you would know the person from a mile away. They're very, they're very self-righteous. They're very like, um, you know, holier than thou. And like that gets in the way of group work sometimes. <laughs> so stupid, dumb world that we live in. <laughs> um, anyways. So like, um, we were having this problem with this group, this group member. And we went to our professor and we we're like, this guy sucks. We hate this guy. <laughs> He's being a huge asshole. And our professor was like, well, if you really love this person, you would tell them that. And we were like, hang on a second. <laughs> what do you mean? Um, all of us, uh, all of us nice Midwestern Protestants um, aghast at the idea of like confronting another person and telling them that they're an asshole. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but the prof was right. I mean, like, you know, if you actually love this person and, um, you know, you want what's best for them in the world, maybe you would correct them. Because like um, it is it's the opposite of love to ignore it. Right. To ignore their actions and how they're how they're possibly hurting other people. I mean, in this situation, it's about a group project, so it's like <laughs> very blown up proportion to say it like that. But just the same, it's it's this it's the same kind of lesson, right? If you're willing to ignore somebody, it means that you really don't care about them that much, right? If you think that they are committing a real error and you're not willing to tell them, then like that is not love for sure, right? That's the opposite. That's um, letting them go on and like hurt more people. That's bad. Not only is it bad for them, but it's bad for you. You had the opportunity to like change something and you didn't do it, and like that sucks. So um, 
I don't know, trying to convince people, trying to call people out when they are actually sinning, when they're actually doing something exploitative uh, is really important. And it can be a sign of love, even though it might not look like, you know, what you think love looks like. Right. Or, you know, like we say on the podcast a lot too, Paulo Freire's uh, famous kind of uh, observation, I guess, in Pedagogy of the Oppressed, that uh, as the uh, oppressed to liberate themselves, they liberate their oppressors as well, but to the oppressor, liberation never feels like liberation, right? It always feels like something being taken away, because it's true, like <laughs> it does take things away, right? Uh, the Jubilee year does take things away uh, from the rich, but nevertheless, it's like if you have uh, things in your life that are harming you and so on, um, I don't know, like it, it doesn't feel good to like have those things taken away from you. But sometimes that's what has to happen if you want to be healthy. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's important to recognize that that uh, it's a, a task of love to build a world where people can't have that opportunity. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and it's a task of love to build a world where people don't have the opportunity to exploit other people. And that will make some people very mad, but that's what love demands, I think. Um, so what? So what if they're mad at you? If they weren't mad at you, they would be exploiting you. Um, or maybe they are going to do both at the same time. Who knows? Well, okay, we have these three different examples kind of out on the table about the ways that um, people deal with, like, the admonitions of wealth in the Bible or the admonitions against exploitation or, or whatever. And we can probably draw some some general conclusions about them, um, and then maybe we can talk through those a little bit more, kind of uh, to to wrap the episodes up. Each of these examples, the authors create a rhetorical framework that says, you know, the admonition of wealth is not really about the wealth; it's about something bigger than than just wealth. It's about greed. It's about worshiping money. It's about arrogance. It's about security, and so on. And through this line of thinking, the specificity of wealth itself is lost in the conversation, right? It's, it, it doesn't, it's not about wealth at all. Um, it's, it's about all these other things that kind of come with it. So, you know, just saying like exploitation is bad or greed is bad or arrogance is bad or, or whatever, and distancing the specificity of wealth is bad, it, it ends up ignoring the social conditions and practices that one needs to undertake to actually build that wealth. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or like, you know, how did you get there in the first place? You know, trace your steps. So, you know, you to accumulate wealth in a capitalist system, it necessitates that you must exploit workers and you must put your own desire for accumulation before the well-being of other people. Like, at its base, that's what it means. So mm-hmm. to do this rhetorical step ends up... Um, <laughs> It ends up like blindly missing the point. Um, you know, it is having a bunch of money bad. Yes. <laughs> because to get that money, you have to engage in all of these things that you think are bad. But um, you know, to say so, to say to take those things seriously, just to say, yes, Jesus is right, as it looks in Luke, where uh, you know, he says that uh, you know, woe to you, rich people. Um, that would mean that rich people would not come to your church or that they would be mad at you or you wouldn't be a popular celebrity pastor in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, so I guess all that to say, like um, celebrity pastors or right-wing academics or, I mean, just, just I mean, I think even generally like Christians who would think of themselves as not even very political, they say these kinds of things all the time. But in doing so, you miss the point. Um you can't just say wealth is not the problem. It's this other thing that's the problem because wealth is explicitly the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's also, I think it's important too to recognize 
all the ways that all the strategies people use to confuse these things even further. Like you said, there's there's lots of rhetoric that people will use to be like, it's not wealth, it's actually about something else. I think people also try to then pin these conversations into weird, like <laughs> scholastic kind of medieval exercises, like exactly how much wealth is too much wealth, right? Mm-hmm. Or like exactly what does it mean to be rich what's the dollar amount in your bank at which point you like cross the threshold into like uh your soul is now endangered and it wasn't a minute ago and i think you know those are exactly the wrong questions to ask like i i really like actually that piece that ernesto cardinal gave to us in the gospel and solentaname that like even that idea of the poor in spirit, right? That um, you can be sort of like a class trader, I guess. <laughs> that is a, a a good way to to save yourself, right? Like, I think the, the wrong way to hear this would be like, everyone has to sort of uh, live like a, a, a totally monastic life, right? Like only surviving on like a piece of bread every day. <laughs> and like the simpler it is, the holier it is. I think, you know, simplicity is good. Monastic life is good. No shade to that at all. But I do think that sometimes you get Christians kind of moving in the opposite direction, that uh, wealth by definition is very bad. And therefore, the only way to sort of figure it out is to like, you know, dumpster dive for food. And I speak from experience. That was my own, <laughs> my own life at a certain point in time. So I understand the logic. I'm sympathetic to it for sure. But uh, it's important too to be like, you know, rich people will always say this. They'll be like, well, do you want everyone to just quit their jobs and like live like they did in Acts 2? And it's like, well, maybe some people probably should do that, I guess. Like, I'm not here to tell them not to do that. But that's not what I'm saying specifically, right? Like, uh, it's more about recognizing those kind of structurally violent ways in which wealth is accumulated and uh, wrongfully distributed or not distributed or, or withheld, right? Recognizing that it's not ultimately about your like individual decision to uh, to be virtuous with your money or to be virtuous in your refusal of money. It's about like changing a system that breeds vices all the time everywhere, no matter what you do. And I think that is right. like the big structural piece. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I mean, the the question about like how much is, is too much and, and whatnot, it, it can also miss the point. I mean, it just reminds me last week we were talking about the um, the conference in Medellin, the document that kind of came out of that mm-hmm. that, that talks about these three different types of poverty, right? There's like, um, there's, you know, poverty is a type of commitment, you know, like voluntary poverty, which is like, you know, a spiritual practice or something. And then there's a type of spiritual poverty as well um, about being, you know, poor in spirit. So you're like open to God. But then there's also the poverty is like lack of goods, which is just blatantly evil, right? Right, right. <laughs> that that deprives other people of things. And I and I guess like maybe that's how maybe we can do a little bit of a flip on that one too, right? Like if your wealth is doing that, then you know you're in trouble. <laughs> you know right, that you're right. you're you know that you have too much. Uh, I guess you don't have to uh, you don't have to dumpster dive about it, but like <laughs> <laughs> you know that if if your wealth is causing other people to have not enough or if your wealth is explicitly built on other people not having not enough then like you got a real trouble in your life right right um the old jeff foxworthy saying uh i feel <laughs> like um <laughs> we uh we would also i think we're obligated to talk very very briefly at the end as an appendix i guess none of these people brought it up which is a surprise to me but about the uh the standard eye of a needle defense um oh so, yeah for sure you know, the rich person can't enter or uh, what is it? <laughs> Why am I blanking right now? A rich person. Um, uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to get into the kingdom yeah, of heaven. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I'm sure everybody has heard this, right? The The standard defense that I've heard at least is um, 
Well, this is a, uh, you have to understand something extremely secret about ancient <laughs> Near Eastern culture, which is that like the eye of the needle is actually a little a little gate that enters into the city and it's really hard to get a, a camel through it. But it can be done. It's just difficult, right? <laughs> That's the uh, the camel least... has to uh, to get down on its knees is the yeah. way I've always heard it told. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of incredible symbolic metaphorical significance to this uh, this fictional gate. Um, and, you know, I heard this in youth group. I remember when I was asking those questions as like an extremely annoying, angsty Christian teen anarchist. Um, I heard it from even like I think a, I had a New Testament professor in my undergrad who said it. Um, but surprise, it is completely made up. Not true. <laughs> there is no evidence that this thing exists. Um, it is like a completely made up uh, hermeneutic that is not present anywhere. There are like some other ways in which uh, even in the early church, people like kind of played around with that passage and found different things to sort of interpret it as. But most biblical scholars also see it as like Jesus offering a very hard teaching. And I think it's important to preserve it that way, too. Right. To refuse like, no, but Jesus is not defusing his language by referring to like a made up uh, custom it's like a very hard teaching, and that's why the young rich ruler goes away extremely sad, <laughs> very mm. bummed out. Yeah, I was doing a little bit of reading on that today, actually, because I, you know, I I know that it is fake. I just wanted to get the details right, but it's apparently a, a very old and pervasive myth that goes back to like the 1400s or something, mm-hmm. uh, which is wild. So you know, 1400 years after uh, after Jesus died, <laughs> you know, people were like, <laughs> uh, actually. <laughs> Right. Actually, it's about a camel going through right, a right. gate. <laughs> well, this is, I mean, it's a good uh, lesson from Marxist historiography of Christianity, which is, of course, not always good in itself. But uh, like Karl Kautsky raises what is kind of a common sense point, I guess. But, you know, more, more common among Marxists, let's say uh, the church has this kind of real um, he calls it a class hatred for the rich. Um This is in his uh, Foundations of Christianity. He calls it a a class hatred. And he says, you know, early Christianity is marked by it. There's a lot of early church fathers who have a lot of uh, nasty things to say about rich people. But he says at a certain point, you know, that primitive communism we see in Acts 2 and 4 of everybody sharing their possessions, it becomes unsustainable. Um, There's too many mouths to feed. There's not enough property going around. There's no productive strategy. So you can't really renew that process. Right. So what do you have to do? you have to find funding, right? You don't, you gave away all your vineyards. It was a bad idea. (laughs) Now you can't make anything right. So you need to go knock on the doors of rich patrons who can actually sustain the community. And that inevitably starts to sort of water down the, uh, the class hatred. And the story is more complicated. Like there are people like uh, Peter Brown is a medievalist. who's done a lot of work on this. And you know, that, that kind of like um, hatred of the rich, extends for a long time and also the interactions of the rich with like early Christian communities is really complicated and weird. But nevertheless, I think there is kind of a good general point there, right? That 1400 years after Jesus Christ, uh, you got a lot of rich people running around in the church and like, yeah, they're going to have to find a way to explain a passage like that. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like that old saying, the communism of consumption is just, uh, is just uh, using up other people's vineyards. (laughs) Exactly. You need that um, communism of production. That's the, that's yeah. where the that's where the good stuff is. Yeah, maybe. Well, maybe this is a good note to end on. So, speaking of the communism of uh, of consumption in Acts, 
Um, we talked about this great book in a past episode called Communism in the Bible by the uh, Mexican liberation theologian Jose Porfirio Miranda. It's a really fun, slim little book. Um, it's great. It goes through so many fun biblical texts and common arguments like anti-communist arguments and so on. And it opens with uh, a great text that I think also fits with that stuff we're reading from uh, Scott Ray. So um, in the book, Miranda says, for a Christian to claim to be not only anti-Marxist, but anti-Marx as well, is probably owing to not having read all of Marx, and the repugnance is a symptom of simple ignorance. But when all is said and done, I do not really care. I'm under no obligation to defend Marx. But for a Christian to claim to be anti-communist is quite a different matter, and without doubt constitutes the greatest scandal of our century. <laughs> the <laughs> a notion... little bombastic, but okay. <laughs> yeah. The notion of communism is in the New Testament right down to the letter, and so well put that in the tw- the 20th century since it was written, no one has come up with a better definition of communism than Luke in Acts 2, 44-45, and 4, 32-35. Um, and Miranda also goes on to say later on that, uh, the, like the fact that that is present in the text, like you get all the time people doing the Scott Ray move, right? It's saying, well, it was a different time. It was a different political economy. We don't have to do that anymore. And Miranda makes this brilliant argument where he says, even if you think that that's true, nevertheless, you have to admit that the Bible says that communism is at least permissible. Like it has been practiced in this particular way. And that is, in fact, the model by which the early church responded most immediately to the resurrection. So whatever principles you want to draw from that, I guess you can try your best to, to figure them out. And, and we do have to think harder about it. But my guess is you're going to have a pretty hard time drawing principles from that situation that lead to like, and that's why the rich are just fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can do it if you're committed to it um, by ignoring most of it, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which is a strategy. I mean, for sure. Um, I mean, listen, there are plenty of parts of the Bible I also ignore, and that's fine. But like, uh, it seems like it seems to me that some of these I I mean, a lot of these teachings and admonitions of wealth and uh, warnings against exploitation and complaining about exploitation are pretty fundamental to the text. And I think if you ignore all of them, you're not going to have a whole lot of Bible left for you to read. So I don't know, man. Good luck, Scott Sauls. Um, Good luck, other right wing pastors. Uh, If you ignore these things or if you just kind of neutralize them, um, what? what kind of what what does your christianity have to say to people not much rich people are good that sucks that's boring we are <laughs> that's the society we already live in like that's the reality of the world um and the bible actually says something i think a little bit more interesting than that yeah not very loving that's right thanks for listening to the magnificast if you like what you heard you can follow us on social media and so on we're on twitter basically that's it <laughs> you can support us on patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast, and we appreciate all of the really great folks who do. Um, our music is by Amaria Armstrong, our outro is by The Illogical Spoon, and we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up at church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam Between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up 
stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have saw 